It's all too much for this elite scholar of religion. He's heard about Jesus' signs. He likely just witnessed Jesus storming the temple's courtyard and chasing everyone, including the livestock, out with the whip of cords and crashing all the cash registers. Jesus has captured the entire city's imagination. He cannot be ignored. So, Nicodemus, one of the top-ranking religious leaders in Jerusalem, comes to Jesus at night, likely to speak with him off the record, to get a closer look at this young prophet's credentials. Let's listen in, shall we? To tell you the truth, Jesus says, you can't see God's dream without being begotten again. Nicodemus is baffled. What do you mean, begotten again? Do we have to go back into our mother's womb? And Jesus audibly sighs and replies, is that the best you can do with all your degrees? What is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of spirit is spirit. But Nicodemus is mystified. How can things like this be? Nicodemus may have been familiar with the idea that the Messiah would be God's begotten son. The idea is not common in the Hebrew scriptures. It does hide in plain sight, though. For example, Psalm 2 God says of the king that he sets on Zion, his holy hill, you are my son, today I've begotten you. For today's discussion, it's clear the notion that any human being living in our midst could be made out of the same stuff as God is an idea well ahead of its time. But that's what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus in this conversation. The son of God is made of the same spiritual stuff as God. Not only that, but through the Son of God, with a change of heart, every person may be begotten of the Spirit. You too. We too, who are born of the flesh, also may be born of the Spirit. We who are born of the flesh may become like Jesus, made of the same stuff of God in this life. If you've ever seen the film Amadeus about the precocious composer and prodigy Mozart, you may remember the scene in uh, Vienna's Berg Theater after the young genius has debuted one of his operas. Then Emperor of Austria, Joseph II, who sponsored the opera, was flanked by his musicians and his aides, and audience members, and he's, he's praising young Mozart for a job well done. But then he pauses to say, of course, now and then it seemed to touch. Uh, occasionally it seems to have been, how shall I say that? And then he looks to his director, and his director says, uh, too many notes, your majesty. <laughs> Actually, he says, too many notes, your majesty. Because that's how they spoke in uh, Austria. (laughs) 
This is how I imagine Nicodemus responding to Jesus when he says, you must be begotten again. I mean, he, he's polished in, in the religious thought of his day. I mean, he's, he's a worshiper every Sabbath. He knows Torah probably like the back of his hand. But then he hears it. You must be begotten again. The spirit breathes where it chooses. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And astonished and flummoxed, Nicodemus responds, how can this be? How do things like this happen? This doesn't compute. I can't wrap my mind around this. Too many notes. But isn't this life in the Spirit? This is abundant life. This eternal life. A new plurality of life. An infinity of life. We begin following Jesus and we discover more and more that our flesh the stuff of this life, the stuff we only see horizontally, is becoming more spiritual, more vertically inclined. Our life becomes more than just life. Too many notes? Across the Gospel of John, we see and hear symphonies pouring out of this one who descended from heaven. He overwhelms the Samaritan woman at the well with generosity and forgiveness. He even tells her how many husbands she's had. What? How did you know? Insights into faith she's never before imagined. And while he's at it, he also transgresses the cultural taboos of, of the time. Men speaking like this with women. Jews conversing with Samaritans. Unthinkable. But the woman is so taken by Jesus and his liveliness and his wit, his playfulness, his generosity, that she forgets her water jar and runs back to the town and tells everyone she knows. And by the time she's done telling her story about what happened, they believe so much that they don't even need her witness anymore. They just simply believe too. We don't need you to say anymore. So many notes. Jesus heals the lame man on the Sabbath. For 38 years, this poor man is, is sat by this pool. Every time the winds blew and the water stirred, it was said that if you touched the waters, you'd be healed, but he couldn't get to them because the crowd was too thick. Every time the, the Spirit stirred the waters, he was, he was too unfit, too disabled to get to the water. Jesus just skips the water, says, take up your mat and walk. And then the onlookers say, too many notes. You did this on the Sabbath. Not allowed. Not long afterward, they're on the remote side of the Sea of Galilee. Crowds have followed Jesus and his disciples. Half a year's salary couldn't feed this crowd. There was a boy with five loaves of barley bread and two fish. And by the end of the afternoon, everyone had had their fill, and there were now 12 baskets full of bread. That's more than they started with. And there's Nicodemus. I can imagine him on the sidelines, calculator in hand, computing too many notes. How can things like this happen? Now, in modern life, scholar Charles Taylor says we live in a malaise of eminence. That's a lot of syllables for a sermon. It's not even noon. One of my uh, mentor uh, friends, generations older than me, Warren Carr, used to preach at Watt Street Baptist 
uh, and then on to Wake Chapel of Wake Forest, Warren Carr, one of the great Baptist preachers of his time, civil rights leader, he used to preach these really heady sermons and say things like malaise of eminence. And people would come out and say, preacher, that was over my head. And he'd say, stretch your neck. (laughs) So it's not that complicated. There's eminence, horizontal. There's transcendence, vertical. There's flesh. There's spirit. But in modern life, doesn't that tension always work at us, pulling us apart? It used to be God was just assumed to be part of your life. Just God was just there for everybody. But now the burden of proof is on people like us. This malaise can give way to cynicism. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Some, we, we know the cynics in our life. They're always down about what's happening in, in life. They, they read the news too much. They probably have one of those phones where the alerts come up all the time with bad news. And just by the end of the day, they're just putting the cigarette out and stomping on it. And, yeah, it's just one thing after another in this life. Malaise of imminence. Facts, empirical evidence, what can be proven. And then comes a free spirit like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Christian who was hanged by the Nazis only weeks before victory in Europe. Bonhoeffer invited us to live what he called a polyphony of life. By polyphony of life, he means to invite us into a different imagination about what it means to be Christian in the world. If anyone had reason to be cynical, it's this beautiful man who was holed up in a Nazi prison cell living out the final months of his life. In love, his fiance is waiting for him. It was not to be. But it's from this same cell that he invites us, every individual, every church, to see ourselves as free-spirited melodies in the world. Can you imagine yourself that way? The world sounds its monophone, and it can be a beautiful sound, but it's basic foundational notes. But Christians are those who who are called to decorate these stanzas, stanzas of life with harmonizing flourishes. Polyphony of life. Mozart was a genius, particularly with this kind of composing. We could read a leaf of his compositions and suddenly notice at the top of the page a floating aria. Descending and ascending like a dove. Taking our breath away with its creativity and its beauty. Bonhoeffer says this is what the Christian life looks like in the world. In the world, but not of the world. Free, charming, confident in God. We might say debonair, which is how the French translate, blessed are the meek, blessed are the debonair. Now, the call is for both 
Christian individuals, Christian communities, it's hard to, to see that the world sees us in these ways. Ask, ask the person of the worldly mind what they think of when they think of the word Christian. Do they think of arias? Do they think of creativity and free spirit and humor and wit and debonair? Depends. Probably not. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, probably not. I'm going to call an audible now and offer a word I have not prepared, but um, word came to me that our young people have asked about this text today. Why uh, do people know so John, know John 3.16 so well, but don't know John 3.17 so well? We all know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the one we see in the end zones at the football games. No one ever puts John 3, 17 in the end zone in the football games. But here's what it says. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world would be saved through him. I long for a Christian faith, and I'm so glad to be part of a congregation that changes the narrative between love and condemnation and how Christians are perceived in the world. But to answer, or at least to provide my own version of an answer to our youth's question for today, I believe we don't hear so much about John 3.17 because it's so easy to condemn. It's so easy to look around us and see what's the matter and to point fingers and to blame. It's so easy to say there's the enemy and they're coming to get us. And by the way, when you do that, you can gather a lot of folks around you and gain a lot of power. And with a lot of power comes a lot of money. But I believe that we are living in a new time. Our congregation, Christians around our country, Christians around the world on the other side of so much death and heartache and pain and cynicism and malaise. But look at all the beautiful life and friendships, and music that we've been given as a gift to flourish and embody in this new time. And we can do that in special ways here. Remember our young people, remember everybody here today what Wendell Berry said in his poem, uh, Manifesto, Mad Farmers, Liberation Front. Be like the fox. Make more tracks than necessary. Some in the wrong direction. So many notes. But now look at Nicodemus. We, we only see Nicodemus one more time. At the end of the gospel, he's paying for Jesus' funeral. hundred pounds of aloes and perfumes. And he and Simon of Cyrene take Jesus' body, they embalm it, they leave it in the tomb. And now I want you to see Nicodemus standing there having just finished the embalming and 
He's approaching the threshold of the tomb to walk out of it. He looks out into the garden. And we have to wonder, in a couple of days, will he hear the aria sung by the bird on his windowsill? We don't know if we will. But we do know how we might respond. That is in our power to look out into the garden and to say, I am going to live a life full of spirit and truth and oh so many notes. <laughs>